0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we will be discussing a book by Princeton professor Nancy Weiss Malkiel, Keep the Damned Women Out, the Struggle for Coeducation." This book is a fascinating in-depth look at the process that allowed women into American and British universities which were historically male. And I must say I was shocked to learn how recently that process happened. But before we blow your minds with the sexism that plagued higher education so very recently, I want to introduce today's reading partner, Christy Skousen. Hi, Christy. Hello, Amy. Before we get into the book, let's just learn a little bit about the author of this book, and then we'll dive into the text after that. So Christy, could you tell us a little bit about Nancy Weiss Malkiel?
1: Yes. Nancy Weiss Malkiel was born in 1944. She was educated at Smith College, obtaining her B.A. Summa Cum Laude and graduating Phi Beta Kappa in 1965. And she went on from there, having won a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship to Harvard University for her M.A. in 1966 and her Ph.D. in 1970. She joined the Princeton University Department of History faculty as Nancy Weiss in 1969, where she rose through the ranks from assistant professor to associate professor to professor, Nancy's career as a writer and teacher has been a distinguished one. When she came to Princeton, she was already an accomplished scholar. Smith College had published her solid full-length biography, as one reader called it, of Charles Francis Murphy, 1858 to 1924, Respectability and Responsibility in Tammany Politics in 1968. She went on to publish several books thereafter. While doing research and writing her later books, Nancy was also lecturing, precepting, and leading seminars in the history department and the program in American studies. She taught or co-taught some of the largest courses in the department's history, courses that routinely attracted in excess of 200 students. The United States since 1940, her signature course, enrolled over 300 students on six different occasions, an enormous number for a class at Princeton University. After spending a year, 1986 to 87, on a fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, Nancy returned to Princeton to take up the many more challenging duties associated with the office of dean of the college in 1987, a position she held for 24 years. Thereafter, following a well-earned leave, she resumed teaching and research in the history department. By then, the focus of her research had shifted and she was devoting herself to exploring the decisions that elite male colleges and universities in the United States and the United Kingdom made to admit women in the late 1960s and 70s, and that their female counterparts made to admit men. In conjunction with this research, she taught a number of undergraduate seminars on coeducation and women in higher education in general. Her work culminated in the book we will discuss today, Keep the Damned Women Out, The Struggle for Coeducation," published in 2016 by Princeton University Press.
0: Thanks, Christy. And I should mention that we got that information from, um, I think, a couple different Princeton University websites. Um, so let's dive into this book. It is a long book. It is, (laughs) But so interesting. So we are going to talk about just a few chapters. I'm going to start with chapter one. So chapter one is called setting the stage. And I just wanted to throw out three really quick facts for historical background. First of all, co-education in the United States was the norm at many state universities, but those were the public universities. The first private college, this is the second point, is the first private college in the United States to become co-educational was Oberlin, and that happened in 1837. I thought it was interesting. Um, it, it points out that the women students at Oberlin took on sex-segregated roles for the college community that mirrored their eventual family responsibilities, like laundry, sewing, and dishwashing.
1: Big intake of breath. <laughs>
0: yeah, just
1: breathe. <laughs> I have a paper bag on hand that you need. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> okay, I'm going to college to learn laundry. <laughs> it's fantastic. How to wash dishes. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, exactly. Okay,
0: the third point, really quick, is um, that th- there was a, an interesting phenomenon where um, at some of the public universities like Berkeley and Michigan, um the enthusiasm for having women students and for coeducation waned in the face of experience they mm. said that too many women students were enrolling and they were doing too well academically and so the fear was that they might quote feminize or even overrun that's quote their universities anyway back to the timeline um even though the public universities were open to women from the beginning, the Ivy Leagues were always all male. And the decisions to limit opportunities for women students were made by men, as we just talked about. Another quote I thought was really important is this one. It responds to the argument that once women in the United States got the right to vote, that everything was equitable, and that women were not at a disadvantage anymore. And Malkiel writes, quote, Giving women the right to vote did not affect the range of sex discrimination that was built into the fabric of American society. It did not give women equal employment opportunities. It did not require equal pay for equal work. Adjusting for education, experience, skills, and field, women in 1960 were earning 61% of men's wages. Moreover, no matter what the industry, there was a ceiling on how far women could go. The vote did not give women the same educational opportunities as men, especially in graduate and professional schools. It did not give women agency to make their own decisions. It did not give them access to credit in their own name. It did not affect cultural and personal expectations about women's subordinate role, that it was women's responsibility to maintain the home and raise the children, that the husband's needs and wishes should take precedence over his wife's. That biology and nature made women suited to supportive, nurturing roles. That feels really uh, familiar to me. (laughs) Um, Here's a graduate from Harvard. Quote, she shouldn't be submissive. She can be independent on little things, but the big decisions will have to go my way. The marriage must be the most important thing that ever happened to her.
1: Mm, Deity. Lucky you to be such a god.
0: Yeah it makes me sick. It actually like Mm -hmm. that last sentence made me so angry. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a recipe for disaster. So uh, yeah, a couple of other um, relevant data points. Malkiel points out that in the late 1950s, 60% of women dropped out of college to get married. And that I think just sets their relationship up for that dynamic. Um, We started out with these discussions about marriage and women's futures just because They're relevant to determine what type of education people thought women would need, right? If that's what women were expected to do, then college was kind of supposed to prepare them for that that sort of future. Um, For example, the president of Mills College, Lynn Townsend White Jr., again, a man named Lynn, um, said that women's colleges should create a, quote, distinctively feminine curriculum Including textiles, weaving, leatherwork, and flower arranging that reflected rather that reflected rather than denied the differences between the sexes. End quote. This is what John Stuart Mill and Sarah Grimke and Virginia Woolf all railed against. They all said whatever knowledge or virtue is good for a man is also good for a woman, and there may be differences between men and women, but for heaven's sake, there shouldn't be a group of men deciding what the distinctions are. And then limiting the women's choices and opportunities based on what they, the men, think the differences are, right? So I just think we should be encouraging all our children, boys and girls, from the moment they're born to be interested in all the fields of learning and exploring everything and to feel confident in any endeavor that interests them. And then they'll choose what they'll choose. And maybe more girls will end up choosing textiles. Sure. Who cares? Great. That's great. And maybe boys will end up, I don't know. Maybe more boys will be firefighters. That's fine. Right. But to use the argument that men and women are different, which they are, and therefore men get to make the choices for women, that's where I draw the line.
1: Yeah, that that really resonates with me. Okay, I think you have the next chapter. That's all I got for chapter one. So if you want to take it away. I will take it away. We'll head to chapter three. Uh, The title of chapter three is Yale. Girls are people just like you and me, which... (laughs) Somebody actually said that, which is why this is the title chapter. So this chapter is about the School of Fine Arts of Yale admitted its first degree candidates in 1869 and awarded the first Yale degree to a woman in 1891. So I think this goes back to kind of what you were exploring earlier because Yale wasn't officially co-ed until 1969. So that that really surprised me that women were given educational opportunities as early as 1869, mm-hmm. which was much earlier than I thought. Um, most likely now that we've talked about this, they were being taught how to do laundry and mm-hmm. dishwashing. I don't know, but most likely. Um, and then I'm also surprised that the process to make coeducation official took so many years. Uh, Yale was officially fully co-ed only three years before I was born. So that's basically in my lifetime, and that kind of blows my mind. This next part kind of talks about the reaction that people were giving as Yale was trying to move to a co-educational model. Okay, so one one point in the book reads this, and gentlemen, let's face it, charming as women are, they get to be a drag if you are forced to associate with them each and every day. <laughs> <laughs> So being at the poor student who has a who has a steady date, he wants to concentrate on the basic principles of thermodynamics, but she keeps trying to gossip about the idiotic trivia all women try to impose on men. So uh, yeah, this just strikes me as sad and lazy thinking. I mean, other than being completely offensive, <sighs> that's a hard one. Yeah, that is a hard one. In in a Yale Daily News article, one male student said. What happens when you go to a men's school is you forget how really good girls can be. You get entangled in a weekend-to-weekend existence and you become a product of it. You lose sight of the simple fact that girls are people just like you and me. Instead, they become things to play with on a lot of days, things. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciate this man that's trying to see, whoa, you know, this is the paradigm that's been running kind of unconsciously for me. And and I do appreciate that it's moving in the direction of including women and valuing them in a new way. But it is also just really disheartening that that it takes so much like mental gymnastics work for men or this man, I should say, to to kind of see women women in something other than just as a thing. Mm -hmm. As a thing to that's on a certain day that's useful for me for this one purpose you know and wow it's revolutionary for me to think wow uh, you know a woman is a person just like just like you and me other man right <laughs> <laughs> okay moving on to chapter 5 which i will also cover um it's titled a penetrating analysis of far reaching significance so now this goes into princeton and its relationship with coeducation princeton was in the business of producing leaders male leaders and alumni had a strong investment in the young men who matriculated at the university, whether they were sons or grandsons of alumni or excellent students from schools and communities to which alumni were deeply attached. So this demonstrates to me the longstanding tradition and belief that women are destined to be in the home raising kids and being in charge of the household while men are destined for leadership within the community. Um, and primary education is good enough to support this destiny, maybe even some higher education, but you know, they'll leave those courses exclusively to homemaking. But higher education, these exclusive universities, was meant to train future community leaders, and leaders were men, and these men were supported by men who went before them. So there was no female leadership that was looking out for. Women are making opportunities available for them. So, um, a member of the class of 1932 wrote from Cleveland, and this is now they're getting alumni feedback on uh, what some of the alumni think about the coeducation of Princeton. And one of them wrote, if Princeton goes co-educational, my alma mater will have been taken away from me. And Princeton is dead in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> and from Palm Beach, Florida, came a similar proposal. What is all this nonsense about admitting women to Princeton? A good old fashioned whorehouse would be considerably more efficient and much, much cheaper. And that's in print. And when the first women arrived at Yale, they were greeted by a banner hanging on the old campus quote, If you must admit women, why this ugly bunch? End quote. So, I mean, again, such threatened reactions. And I do, I wonder, I want to talk to them and say, what's behind that? It's such bully behavior. Is it, are you just a, you know defending your territory is it out of habit is it fear of change were men worried about losing their place were they worried about losing their purpose it, i i mean i think if we're going to continue to work together and improve this we have to understand what it is that's so so threatening um i remember hearing some quote about if you want if you want to get somebody to fight you threaten their identity mm. so are you threatening their identity um but the 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 amount of anger and threat in these quotes are what stand out to me and other you know i think i'm coming from a lovely place of saying i would like to understand you so yeah. i can work with you but also i want to be clear that it's not okay mm-hmm. and that your words do have an effect mm-hmm. and they are incredibly harmful and we are still paying the price for even even now for words such as these, and that we still hear today. Maybe not as much, and but we do, and in, I won't, won't go into it. But we all know that we do. So now into chapter six, treat Yale as you would a good woman. So we move on to Yale and their relationship towards uh, coeducation, and this first part is by um, this first quote is from Elga Wasserman. So Wasserman reassured male students nervous about the super women joining them on campus that there would not be too many girls who are both really bright and really aggressive. Exceptionally bright, yes, but more likely to be quiet than over assertive. So this is just taking a different perspective, you know, in terms of threat. So we don't see them as objects, but now we're seeing them maybe as smarter than we are, uh uh-oh, or too aggressive. Oh boy. (laughs) What are we going to do? Again, like they're foreign objects. We don't know what to do with them in this academic situation. This feels uncomfortable to us. So, you know, the basic approach to co-education as the headmistress of the girls boarding school, Milton Academy observed, was to begin by treating the girls like the boys and see what happens. So here's another take, you know, is again, what do we do? How do we handle these girls coming in? Well, let's just treat them like boys, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, which is, Well, they're not boys because then we go into, you know, inherent differences. So one of the problems they ran into was how would they be housed? Like, Mm -hmm. are they going to live together and how's that going to look? And would they have all the same opportunities? And what about sports? So they realized we don't, we're not set up to have the same opportunities in sports. And, and even just in numbers of how many women should be admitted, should we start off with, I mean, most of them started off with small numbers and would gradually increase, had this plan of increasing enrollment to until they got about, you know, they would have specific percentages of we'll get to 30-70, you know, with 70% men and 30% women, or we'll try and get to 50-50. But if we move it too fast, then it's going to upset everybody and we're not used to it. So we'll do it gradually. But there were so many details to consider and clearly threats felt all around, even for the people who are happy about women coming in, there was just a lot of unknown. So I'm really grateful for the people who are willing to wade through it instead of just saying, are you kidding me? You know, and just trying to blow things up, which is kind of where I tend to go. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so uh, as as women are coming into Yale, there was a math class where a woman student was asked for her opinion on the chain rule. And why did the instructor single her out? She asked And he answered, to make sure to include the female point of view. And she said, it's a math class. There is no female perspective. Good for her, by the way. Good for her, because she was probably well underrepresented in that class. In a psychology course, a woman studied, a a woman student often got papers back with comments such as, not bad for a woman. Uh, In directed studies where the students were reading Plato's Republic, the instructor asked the two women students, girls. Plato says women are as intelligent as men. Do you think that's true? One of the students recalled. We looked at each other in amazement and said, Yes. The instructor grinned and pounced. Then why are there no great women philosophers? The incident made a lasting impression. I forget exactly what was what answer was made, the student said, but of course it was followed by no great women artists, no great women composers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And more painful still is the experience of students who had The temerity to suggest that they were interested in studying women. Wasserman told the story years later of a woman student who came to her office absolutely dissolved in tears. What was the matter? Wasserman asked. I talked to the chair of the department about giving a course in women's history, the student said, and he said that would be like teaching the history of dogs. So I honestly don't understand these professors. Um, one woman at Gale said, we were, an, we were an anomaly. Laboratory specimens closely watched for our reactions under the stress of tokenism. Generalization about our psyches was rampant. The girls are too serious. The girls are always in the library. The girls are prima donnas. We were so sought after that we simply had neither the time nor energy left to explore our own insides. We were comfort suppliers and ego boosters, receiving no reassurance in return except in terms of our subjective desirability as mere females. Oh my gosh, just reading that out loud, that's hard.
0: Okay, awesome, Christy. Um, I have chapters 19 and 20 about Dartmouth. So Dartmouth is a case study in the book because it held out um, against co-education longer than any of the other Ivy Leagues. And it had some of the most inflamed reactions of any of the schools mentioned in the book. Some of them, even, I would say, even a little worse than the ones we just read about Yale. I mean, mm. just like ugly, ugly, maybe not worse, but but certainly on par with that ugliness. The president in the 1960s had said Dartmouth would never admit women. But in 1970, John Kemeny was named to succeed that prior president. Um, John Kemeny was a Hungarian immigrant who still had a pronounced foreign accent, and he was Jewish. And no Ivy League institution had ever appointed a president who was either foreign-born or Jewish. Uh, President Kemeny made the announcement that they were going co-ed in 1972. Unreal. Unreal. Male students like to refer to their female counterparts as cohogs, which was a phonetic spelling of the quahog, which was a thick-shelled clam. So it was a nickname meant as a derogatory reference to female genitalia. It was customary to see and hear the term in regular use on campus. In the spring of 1975, there was a competition which involved the rendition of original songs by each of the fraternities, so the entry from Theta Delta, which was sung to the tune This Old Man, consisted of 10 verses, five of which went as follows. I just cut out five of them and I included five. So it's to this old man. Our cohogs, they play one. They're all here to spoil our fun. With a knick-knack paddywhack, send the bitches home. Our co-hogs go to bed alone. Our co-hogs, they play three. They all have to squat to pee. And then the chorus again. Um, our cohogs they play four. They are all a bunch of whores. Our cohogs, they play six. They all love those tri-cap dicks. Our co they play seven. They have ruined our masculine heaven. Those are the ones that I'll say. Um, and I'll just let that stand. Uh, the next thing I wanted to share, and this is almost the last one, is. In the winter of 1979, in the context of an intense campus discussion of sexism, racism, and other problems at the college, the New York Times reported on a day of speeches and workshops on campus referencing the speech given by an undergraduate woman who was urging more vigorous recruiting of minority women, expansion of the women's studies program, free daycare facilities, equal financing for women's and men's athletics, and a review of all tenure decisions for the last two years at Dartmouth. Three weeks later, that student received an envelope containing a copy of the Times story with the words, Why? Scrawled next to the paragraph reporting on her remarks. Typed below the story was a note that read, Hope you're happy with this, you ungrateful bitch. You have done a terrible disservice to Dartmouth. If you don't like the place, get out. So, as I said, that wasn't even all of the incidents. So in contrast, I want to end with some positive stories from Dartmouth. And I just feel like these are a great contrast with that comment, if you don't like the place, get out. That's just kind of a crude way of saying what you were saying earlier, Christy, that you were articulating in a more sophisticated way, that it's really hard to make changes, right? And so um, they've been tasked with all kinds of really... um, really huge changes to make and then some nuanced data to analyze and it's just hard to make change and then this guy just is crude about it and just says if you don't like it then leave right because mm-hmm. we're not going to change for you anyway um there were also some really lovely um examples of men supporting women mm-hmm. and I want to share a couple of those to end for example a female student recalls that her graduating class in 1976 was congratulated with Dartmouth men and women and that the whole stadium erupted mm. into cheers. She felt very supported because they had always they they didn't say Dartmouth students, they said Dartmouth men, mm-hmm. and she, that she was the first graduating class in 1976. And right. so, um, somebody was willing. Awesome to say women. Um, one more example before we wrap up is this: in the spring of 1979, a woman in the senior class wrote to President Kameny almost on the spur of the moment in the wake of a discussion in her feminist philosophy course. Okay, so there was a feminist philosophy course by 1979. Good. Um, So she wrote to the president and said, we were talking about the givens in the use of language. Adam and Eve, men and women, boys and girls, how Mm -hmm. men always come first, she said. President Kameni, she wrote at the time, during my four years at Dartmouth, you have always addressed student audiences as men and women of Dartmouth, When you are addressing my graduating class, would you please say women and men of Dartmouth? When Kemeny did that at the commencement, the, the audience erupted in wild applause. A woman in the class of 1980 recalled, women and men of Dartmouth. It reverberated through the audience. The symbolism was not lost on any of us. It was a dramatically different statement from men and women of Dartmouth. Tears came to our eyes. Shivers went down our spines and cheers, mostly female, resounded through the audience. We knew we had made it, that we belonged and that people who mattered wanted it Mm. that way. So quickly, three points come to mind. Um, One thing is, it is still the same power dynamic, right? It's still a woman asking the man in power to please grant her request to show consideration and respect to women. And he could have said no, he could have said yes, And then the next president could say no, (laughs) like the power is still 100 percent in male hands. On the other hand, and my second point is, like I just said, we inherit the system we inherit and we choose to do with it what we do. And so given that President Kemeny found himself in the position of being the president of Dartmouth and he was asked to use the, the word women first, he had two choices to do it or to not do it to welcome women or to exclude them. And he made a choice that meant a lot to those women. Mm -hmm. So I was so impressed with him. Um, And then the third thing, as I reflect on that particular incident, but on a lot of the examples that we just read in all of our chapters, is that language really matters. Words matter. And it might feel small to someone who has never been in the position of being marginalized or Mm -hmm. feeling left out. But it can feel like a big deal to a person who has absorbed a message that they are second class their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to be really, really careful with our words. And I think I'll just make those my takeaways for the the book as a whole.
1: So as we wrap up the discussion, what's one of your takeaways, Christy? Yeah, this book made me really appreciate something I had previously taken for granted. In the early 80s, my mom attended Johns Hopkins University in pursuit of her doctorate degree. I was in second grade when she began her program there, and it was just jaw-dropping for me to learn. It was just ten years earlier, in 1970-71, that Johns Hopkins became co-ed. You know, to think that my mom would not have had the opportunity to study there just ten years prior is hard for me to even to even fathom. As, as a daughter of two highly educated parents, it honestly never crossed my mind that the opportunities for my mom to be educated would be any different than my dad's. And so I'm so grateful for the men and women who are willing to give so much time and effort to making this change. Um, Because these were elite institutions with so much power, they really didn't need to change. They could have chosen to just stay the same and stay in, to stay in power exactly how they were. And they could have dug in their heels and continued on in the paradigm they were given. But instead, they chose to be an example of inclusiveness and growth, which meant for me, little Christy Peary, it meant that I grew up believing I had every opportunity open to me. And this belief shaped how I thought of myself and how hard I worked and my confidence growing up and how I saw myself in the world. So I'm really grateful.
0: I'm sure glad that little Christy Peary grew up to be exactly the way she did. <laughs> um, and I absolutely agree. I I have new gratitude, too, for the whole process. And I'm grateful that as my daughters apply to college, they can apply anywhere they want. And I had never Mm-mm. been thought to be grateful for that nope. before. And I just have, um, yeah, like, like you said, it just blows my mind that that was such a recent development. I had no idea until we read this book. So thank you so much for being here, Christy. I'm so grateful. As always, I learned so much from you and I so appreciate you taking the time.